Welcome to the dark recesses of the History Obscura reading room. Yes, we've had electric lights installed, but why spoil a perfectly good ambience? It's well in keeping for tonight's reading. You see, I recently heard a terrifying story in which a young lady, drawn to the woods after sundown to test her new camp and night vision gear, found herself the victim of a hunt. Two strange men had followed her into the woods, knowing she was alone. Unaware of the intended victim's night vision gear, the men were spotted from a safe, cozy spot in a tree. Terrified for her safety, the woman froze until her pursuers passed, and suddenly, inexplicably, she heard a clear, authoritative voice in her ear, giving instructions on how to survive. She obeyed first crouching inside a hollow within a riverbank as the men discussed where she may have gone, then sprinting to the safety of her car in the nearby camp parking lot. The voice vanished once the woman reached safety. These kinds of stories, believed by individuals to be a psychic phenomenon, a guiding spirit or mental coping mechanism, are found throughout history. Once upon a time, for example, on the 20th of May, 1916, Ernest Shackleton, Frank Worsley, and Tom Crean reached Stromness, a whaling station on the north coast of South Georgia. They had been walking for 36 hours, in life-threatening conditions, in an attempt to reach help for the rest of their party. Three of their crew were stuck on the south side of the island, with the remainder stranded on Elephant Island. The group's ultimate goal was to reach the as-yet-unreachable South Pole of Antarctica. But as conditions worsened, the group leader, Shackleton, made the decision to turn back for help, some 97 kilometers short of the pole. To reach the whaling station, the three men had to cross the island's mountainous interior with just a rope and an axe, in a journey that few had attempted before or since. By reaching Stromness, they managed to save all the men left from the ill-fated Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. They did not talk about it at the time, but weeks later all three men reported an uncanny experience during their trek, a feeling that often there were four not three, men on their journey. The fourth that accompanied them had the silent presence of a real person, someone walking with them by their side as far as the whaling station, but no further. Shackleton was apparently deeply affected by the experience, but would say little about it in subsequent years, considering it something which can never be spoken of. He did say, I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that they were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions on the point, but afterwards, Worsley said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. 
Crean confessed to the same idea. One feels the dearth of human words, the roughness of mortal speech, in trying to describe things intangible. But a record of our journeys would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts. During his historic 1927 transatlantic flight from New York to Paris, Charles Lindbergh, piloting the spirit of St. Louis, fell into explosive thunderstorms and blinding fog, drifting with each mile ever closer to sleep. To keep awake, he doused himself with cold rainwater. During the 22nd hour of his voyage, Lindbergh sensed other presences aboard the craft. These phantoms, he wrote, were there to assist, conversing and advising on my flight, discussing problems of my navigation, reassuring me, giving me messages of importance unattainable in ordinary life. The famed aviator did not discuss this until nearly three decades after the flight. He remembered transparent forms in human outline, but stated, I can't remember a single word they said. British explorer Frank Smythe, who almost became the first person to summit Mount Everest in 1933, has a similar tale. Along with his climbing party, Smythe made the intense journey towards the summit in poor conditions. But his party soon turned back after terrible weather and lack of oxygen made the summit an impossible task. Smythe continued, determined to complete his climb. Sleep-deprived, starving, and gasping for air, the former RAF pilot was alone on Mount Everest. The date was June 1st, 1933, and the era of high-altitude climbing was in its infancy. Everest, the world's highest peak, had yet to be conquered. Smythe was now in the so-called death zone, the area above 26,000 feet, where the amount of oxygen in the air is insufficient to sustain human life. Weak as a kitten, in his own words, he pressed forward, but with each step he sank deeper into the snow. The summit was only a thousand feet higher, but it might as well have been a thousand miles. Smythe was overcome by a feeling of hopelessness and weariness. His limbs trembled and he felt like he was suffocating. He made one last attempt to press on, but standing for a few moments at the very boundaries of life and death, as he put it, at an elevation as high as any man had ever reached, he finally concluded that the summit of Everest was not for mere flesh and blood. Smythe had already earned his place in the history books, but what happened next made his story one of the most talked about endeavors in climbing folklore. Weak and desperately hungry, he reached into his pocket for a slab of Kendall mint cake. This I took out of my pocket, and carefully dividing it into two halves, turned round with one half in my hand to offer my companion. But Smythe was alone, 
in one of the most inhospitable spots on Earth. Astonishingly, throughout the solo part of his climb, he'd had a strong sensation that he was accompanied by a second person. And so real did this person seem that Smythe believed he too would need sustenance. At the moment he held out the piece of mint cake, he described the presence as so near and so strong that it was almost a shock to find no one to whom to give it. Smythe later revealed that the ghostly companion had joined him almost as soon as he had parted company with his last remaining comrade. But after finally making it back to base camp, he was initially too embarrassed to talk openly about the phenomenon for fear of ridicule. Indeed, he entered his experience on the official record only after much persuasion from the expedition leader. He wrote, All the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. The feeling was so strong that it completely eliminated all loneliness I might otherwise have felt. It even seemed that I was tied to my companion by a rope, and if I slipped, he would hold me. I remember constantly glancing back over my shoulder. The sensation continued until he descended far enough to see camp. Modern stories of this third man syndrome, or third man factor, are numerous, and psychologists believe it may be a form of hallucination brought on by the extreme stress of finding oneself in a life or death situation. The term third man syndrome, or factor, is used to describe incidents like this. The name comes from the T.S. Eliot poem, The Wasteland, in which a passage refers specifically to the last leg of the Shackleton expedition. It reads, Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there's always another one walking beside you, gliding wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. Whether man or woman, I do not know. But who is that on the other side of you? Thanks for your company tonight, listeners. Good night.